It's Palm Sunday, as you know. It's the day we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. One week before his resurrection, one week before our forgiveness would be secured through his shed blood, sealing his victory over sin and death. It was a beautiful day full of singing and praise. The people threw their cloaks on the ground right ahead of him. They put palm branches out to do the same. They praised and they honored Jesus with the words of Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people were giving Jesus the royal treatment that he is worthy to receive. Unfortunately, they still didn't quite understand the comprehensive nature of his kingdom. He hadn't come to simply rescue them politically. He hadn't come just to set them free nationally. Jesus had come to save them spiritually. They missed the true reason for Jesus' presence that day, why he came to Jerusalem. They did not know that a cross awaited him just a few days later. They probably never would have expected that they would be the very ones crying out for his crucifixion. But Jesus knew that it was the only way that they and we could be saved. That's why we celebrate Palm Sunday and why we cannot wait for the next Sunday that's coming. So I hope you have been convicted and encouraged. I know I have been as we've worked our way through Psalm 51 these last six weeks or so. We've gone to the depths with King David and we've seen what God can and will do when we respond to the Spirit's faithfulness and His goodness to convict us of our sin. When we humbly repent, fully dependent on Him, to do in us and for us what we could never do for ourselves. I hope we've been encouraged to see that no matter how deep our sin, God's grace, His abundant mercy and steadfast love are deeper. We're, so we're wrapping up Psalm 51 today. Last week when our David covered verses 13 through 17, we saw that when we respond to God's call for us to repent, when we accept his forgiveness, when we, by his help, turn from our sin, then we cannot help but be overcome with joy, so much so that we have this uncontainable desire to serve God by sharing all that we've learned about God's ways with as many people as possible so that they too can be restored by him. Not only that, but when God moves on our hearts, we respond by receiving his forgiveness. We can't help but praise him, right? We sing, we tell, we lift our hands because we are so full of gratitude for what God has done in us, what God's done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And last, we learned that ultimately all of this leads to a desire to please God. And the only way to please him is to is to offer ourselves in response to what he's done by repenting, by asking for forgiveness, by receiving that forgiveness. And then we respond with broken and contrite hearts of sacrifice. Our hearts broken to pieces and crushed under the weight of our sin 
lives fully surrendered to him in humble repentance. We have such an abundantly merciful and steadfastly faithful and loving God. So we read the psalm in its entirety just a few minutes ago, but here are the last two verses again. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So let's first take a look at this word Zion. It occurs in the Bible about 150 times. It basically means fortification. And it carries along with it this idea of being raised or built up as a monument. The first time the word Zion occurs shows up, the first time it shows up in the Bible is in 2 Samuel chapter 5, where it says that King David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So Zion was originally an ancient Jebusite fortress in the city of Jerusalem. And so after David's victorious conquest, the royal palace was built there, and Zion, or Jerusalem, the city of David, became the political capital of Israel. So listen to these verses from Psalm 87. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken, O you city of God. So we see here that the, the, in this verse that Zion and the city of God are the same thing, and it's a literal place God loves. However, as the unfolding story of redemption you know, unfolds throughout Scripture, we'll discover that Zion takes on additional spiritual meaning. So when Solomon, who is David's son, when he became king, he built a permanent temple in Jerusalem, which was in place of the tabernacle that moved from place to place with them when they were in the wilderness. But it's interesting to note that here, because David, King David, he really, really wanted to be the one that got to build the temple. But God told him that he could not not build the temple in Jerusalem because he had shed too much blood. And some of that blood was Uriah's, He's the guy that uh, was Bathsheba's husband. Bathsheba was the woman with whom David had an affair. And so some of that blood that David had shed was was right there. And those are the two sins, two of the sins that were weighing so heavily upon him, right? And, and, And led to the penning of this psalm. No doubt living with that kind of weight every day was nearly unbearable. But so... We can have absolute assurance that that kind of weight, that sin, is forgiven. But we learn in Scripture that the consequences of those sins here on earth are not always removed. That's what David learned. So Solomon built the temple. And the meaning of Zion, when he did that, then kind of expanded to include the temple area. The place where God would descend to be among his people. The temple was the the physical center of their spiritual identity. So in the Old Testament, we see that literally Zion meant it was the city of Jerusalem. It was also used to describe the temple. It was also used to refer to the land of Judah or the nation of Israel as a whole. 
And when we get to the New Testament, Zion refers to God's spiritual kingdom. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So up to this point in the psalm, David had been praying for himself, right? Here, his focus shifts. He prayed for God to do good to Zion, for Jerusalem, kind of this all-inclusive, all of God's people, his kingdom. And at first, that seems maybe a bit odd here, but upon further reflection, it makes sense. What David did to Bathsheba and Uriah, it was horrible in and of itself, no matter who you are. But David was Israel's king. And so he was the one God had chosen to lead and protect his people. That meant that David's choices could either do great harm or do great good for the entire nation. His sin had already cost the lives of at least two innocent people, Uriah, as well as the son Bathsheba conceived when they committed adultery. David begged God for that, the life of that baby, and God said no. Neither one of them. He killed two lives gone because of David's sin. David had personally experienced then the, in the incredible mercy, the kindness of God to forgive him and to restore him, and he couldn't help but pray that God would do the same for his people as a whole, to do good to them despite what David had done that had threatened the well-being of all of them. We've already seen that David had been praying for God to do in him what only God could do. David could never do it for himself. And here we see him praying that God would do good for his people, something David could never do on his own. So if I may, I'd like to step out of the text here for a moment to speak to how we might apply this to our own lives. Granted, none of us have the position or the power that David did. But nonetheless, God has very much designed his church, us, his people, as a body, right? My life in Christ isn't just about me, myself, and I. Your life is not just about you, your life in Christ. We are a we, right? And we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that when one suffers, when one part of us suffers, we all do. In some way, shape, or form, sin always, always leads to sorrow, loss, and death. But not just for the person who sins. When I choose sin, I suffer, but so do all of you. And when you choose sin, you suffer, but so do the rest of us. Though we may think that some of our sins are private, that they don't hurt anybody but us, the truth is we never truly sin in isolation. Everybody loses every time. And so we must pray. We need to do what David did here and ask God to be merciful to us collectively. If you ever wonder how to pray, for Four Mile Church. Pray that God would protect us, 
that he would establish and and build up his church and do good to the body of Christ, even though we all make choices every day that threaten the health and the well-being of one another. And I don't know if you noticed, but in that verse, it says that it brings God pleasure to do just that. David's desire in verse 12 is that through what he learned, other sinners like him would learn all to all would all learn to walk in God's ways, and that he knew that would be evidence of God doing good to Zion for sure. And that would delight God. So what are those ways? Well, it's what we've been learning during this entire season of Lent. This Psalm 51 lifestyle of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration, and then turning around to encourage others to do the same. Listen, God does good to his church. He builds up his kingdom through humble, repentant sinners like you and me. He does good to those who together own and confess their sin, who trust in the abundant mercy of God to forgive them through Christ's sacrifice, and who cry out together for Him to cleanse and restore us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does it really mean, though, for God to do good for us, to us? What does that really mean that God build us up? Well, it definitely doesn't mean that God is always going to give us what we want. It doesn't mean it's always going to feel good. David begged God, again, he begged God to spare the son that had come to Bathsheba upon the the, uh, commitment of adultery with her, but God did not. Anything and everything that makes us more aware of how sinful we are apart from Him and how desperate we are for Him to do what only He can do. Even the things, even the things that cost us more than we think we can bear. That is God doing good for us. That is God doing good for us. But sometimes God's good for us really hurts. It's only been in the last year or so that I've come across this quote from Charles Spurgeon, but it instantly became a favorite of mine. He, I I would imagine it was one of his sermons, but so he wrote or he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I don't know if you've ever been tossed around in the ocean by the waves. It is in no way, shape, or form fun. It doesn't feel good. It's actually quite terrifying. But if the waves throw us beaten, broken, and bruised on our face before God, onto the rock of Christ Jesus, because we know that we know that we know that we cannot survive without Him, that's a really good place to be. That is the best place to be. Thank God for the waves that throw us against the rock 
of Christ Jesus. Anything and everything that causes us to treasure Jesus, to become more and more like Him, to become more and more desperate for Him, that's a good, good gift from God, even if it hurts. Then, David says, will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So if you worshiped with us last week online or in person, you may be scratching your head just a little bit here because you may remember that King David just got done saying a few verses earlier in verses 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So... Will God delight or not delight in sacrifices? At first blush, David seems to be contradicting himself here, but there's, there is no dichotomy. This is a perfect example of how critical context is. But before we answer that question, let's just we'll put that on pause for a second. Let's first dig a little bit deeper into the significance of sacrifices and offerings. So there were lots of offerings um, that the old the, the Israelites were directed to offer all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the, uh, the, the entire year. There were different sacrifices and offerings marking the calendar, each one of them kind of representing a different, a different thing, expressing a different longing for, for the Lord or, or praise or thanksgiving, whatever it might be. Technically, any offering that was burned over an altar Uh, was a a burnt offering, which is brilliant, right? Uh, But more specifically, a burnt offering, which is what David mentions here, it it was a complete destruction of the animal except for the hide in order that the relationship between a holy God and sinful man could be renewed or restored. We know from Scripture that there is never, ever the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so a burnt offering was a sacrifice of of general atonement. It was an acknowledgement of their sin nature, and it was a request for a renewed relationship with God. And so that's precisely, we've seen this all throughout the psalm, that's precisely what David has been most concerned about this whole time, right? In verse 9, David begged God to hide his face from his sins, but not from him. In verse 11, he was terrified that God might take his Holy Spirit from him. David's worst fear was to be cast away from God's presence. So it's really no wonder that David had this burnt offering in mind here, the offering that was meant to restore the relationship between God and man. So back to our question then, will God delight or will he not delight and sacrifices meant to restore a sinner's relationship to him. Well, we can be absolutely sure that God is not rejecting his own appointed sacrificial offerings in verses 16 and 17. The key lies in the word right in verse 19. God delights in right sacrifices. The word right here means perfectly straight and true. Yes, sin could be atoned for by the shedding of blood. Here's the thing. We could come with the perfect, 
perfectly straight and true, right? Outward sacrifice, a lamb without spot or blemish. We can have all of our I's dotted, all of our T's crossed, but inwardly, if we do not despise our sin just as much as God does, if we are not broken over the fact that we are rebellious and we deserve nothing but God's wrath, if we do not come in contrite humility before the only God who can save us, and then it doesn't matter how much sacrificial blood is shed. Our burnt offerings and our sacrifices are worthless. They're not right. We're wasting our time. But when God's appointed sacrifices are brought alongside hearts that are crushed by sorrow over our sin and wholly desperate for God to be merciful, then, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Everything will be as it was meant to be, inside and out. The right and perfect outward sacrifices coming from right hearts. But may I make a confession here? When I look inside my heart and I see what's still there, I see so much sin, and I know that if the fulfillment of these verses were up to me, there would be no hope. And that is the same for all of us, which is why we celebrate this day, the day when the perfect Lamb of God, perfectly straight and true, the sinless one who had no spot, no blemish, rode into Jerusalem to offer up himself as the once for all sacrifice of atonement for our sin. His was the only true right sacrifice, the only blood capable of fully and finally taking away our sin, though they be as scarlet and washing us clean, white as snow. What a beautiful foreshadowing this psalm is of our desperate need for Jesus to come and do what only he can do. Jesus suffered unimaginable pain for us. He bore the wrath of God for our sin. It did not feel good, but it was good. And it was the best good that has ever been done for us. Through his whole experience of sinful rebellion and life-giving restoration, David learned the real meaning of sacrifice. Confession, forgiveness, total dependence on a merciful God, all which result in a joyful new life and ministry. In the New Testament, this whole idea is beautifully reflected in Paul's letter to the church in Rome where he writes in chapter 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Because Christ offered up his body and his blood as the perfect right sacrifice for our sins, no more animals ever have to be shed ever again. Nothing ever has to be slaughtered, no blood. His is sufficient. And then by grace through faith, our response to God's abundant mercy still today is the same as David's. Serving God, praising God, pleasing God, pouring out our hearts and lives for God, that's the kind of right sacrifice. That's the kind of worship that God loves. I mentioned it earlier. We've sung it. We know it. Today is Palm Sunday. Now, all throughout this Lenten season, we've been reflecting on the fact that it was our sin that nailed Jesus to that cross just a few days after he rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Palm Sunday was a profound foreshadowing of a day, a day that is still yet to come, when every knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. A day when our worship will not able to be contained. We will not be able to do anything but cry aloud, sing with everything and everyone else in creation that all glory and honor and praise be given to Christ alone. Listen to this verse from Revelation. This was given to the Apostle John, this vision. And he said, There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And listen, they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. By grace, through faith, we will be among those palm-bearing saints. And we will sing together. We will shout together that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, salvation has come to us out of Zion, out of the place and the people that God loves. Who is going to be able to contain our joy on that day. Band is going to come up. This Wednesday, as David reminded us, uh, is going to be our last day of, of fasting together with one another and then coming together to, to meditate and pray and, and receive communion. And we're also going to be able to come together on Friday at 7 p.m. as we remember and mourn the death of the Savior of the world. But let Psalm 51 be a nearly immeasurable encouragement to every one of us that while each of us must come to terms with the reality and the consequences of our sin, God does not want us to be paralyzed in debilitating frustration and despair over it. He has offered us this good, good gift of repentance in order that we might be broken, forgiven, cleansed, renewed, restored, and overjoyed at the wonder of it all, at his mercy and goodness and love. Sin always 
always ends in sorrow. But repentance always, always ends in joy and praise. How could it not? Would you pray with me? Abundantly merciful and steadfastly loving God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for moving on King David so many years ago to write what every single one of us could write. We thank you for these examples in scripture of what it looks like to be broken and contrite, to find forgiveness and wholeness and restoration in you. Father, my prayer today is that these words would pierce our hearts. They would utterly transform us. May we not leave here unchanged. We thank you for what you've done for us individually. We thank you for what you do for your church. You build us up when we humbly respond and we magnify your ways. God, do that among us today and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 